Welcome back to The Brandy Show, Conversations With, and welcome back to an ongoing chat with a longtime Detroit Lions Media Relations Director, Bill Keenest. In part one of our conversation, we talked a lot about Bill's background and the parade of coaches that made their way through Pontiac and Allen Park that Bill had to join as they navigated their careers in Detroit. In part two, we'll talk more about the players and one of the most controversial times in Lions history, the Matt Millen era. It's the inside behind the scenes history of our beloved Lions from a guy who was on the front lines of this history and who lived it all. Interesting, surprising, and never dull. It's part two of my conversation with Bill Keenest. The transition when Matt Millen came into the Detroit Lions, you were in the middle of that transition too. Yeah. And there's oh, yeah. another question of why didn't you think that worked? Because Matt you know what? is a good football guy, right? Yeah, a real good football guy. I think, and Matt will tell you, he didn't trust his gut a couple times in, in the – and the billboard for that is when he picked Mike Williams instead of uh, DeMarcus Square. I mean, he, he, he hired what he thought were good football people um, onto his personnel staff. And I just don't think Matt uh, trusted his guts the way he should have. You know, and, and I referenced that, that Giants game where we went to four and two. That would have been Matt's third year with us. And, and we thought we were on our way, but, um, but yeah, I, I think the mistake Matt probably made was just not trusting what got him in that position in the first place. Just and Mr. Ford and Mr. Ford loved Matt. He was one. Yeah. Matt, I even interviewed Matt on conversations with, and he told me that he yeah. told Mr. Ford. He says, "Hey, I've never done this before." And Mr. Ford said, "Don't worry, yeah. you'll figure it out." Yeah, yeah, and uh, it's a, it's a hard job. It's a different job, and it's uh, it's not only responsible for the for the football side, but you're, you're in charge of the building. You're in charge of a lot of people and you can't under underestimate the impact of that. So, um, yeah, that was, that was unfortunate. Yeah, it was. Uh, let's go to the players now. And, and again, you, you're so amazing because you got so many good stories and, but so many watershed events that you were right yeah. next to. Yeah. Barry Sanders was to me, one of the great football players of all time. Yeah. I, I watched every yeah. professional run. He's a great young man when he yep. came here. You had to deal with him with the media. And then yep. Barry kind of left everybody, including you, out of the loop yeah. when he decided to retire. Yeah, he did. And um, I have such fond memories of Barry. We had a wonderful relationship up until the very end. You know, I, I honestly got a sense that, that Barry was going to, Something, something was amiss. Did you really? Because I, I thought he I kind of blindsided pretty much everybody, I thought. Yeah, I, I did. I, I remember being at the Super Bowl, working the Super Bowl after the 98 season. I was working the Super Bowl, and I remember getting a call from Barry's agent, uh, or one of Barry's agents at the time, working that Super Bowl. Well, even at the end of that season, he played yeah. – we played in Baltimore. Yeah. And and supposedly yes. there were somebody said Barry said, Well, this is gonna be my last game back yeah. then. Although nobody yeah. verified that. No, and, and Barry there's supposedly the interaction uh between him and Kevin Glover that tears were shed during that exchange because Kevin was no longer with us. He was with Seattle and he was injured at some point during that season. So he was back home in Maryland. Kevin went to the University of Maryland. 
and uh, was living back there in the off season. And he and Barry were extremely close as, as word has it, supposedly he and Kevin had a, uh, Barry and Kevin had a very emotional exchange after that game in the locker room privately, privately. But after that, after that season, something's not right here. And then throughout that off season, Barry didn't come to any camps and Bobby Ross tried to reach him multiple times and uh, just didn't happen. And then, you know, the eve of training camp, boom, Barry retires. Well, even with the, all of that, and it was a surprise yeah. that from your perspective, you watched football yeah. all your life. He was as good as they come, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And, uh, and the thing about Barry and and you, you know, you explained it very well describing the type of player and person he was, you know, when people ask me, what, what are your favorite memories of Barry? Well, for the most part, it's not what he did on the field. It was the type of person he was, the humility, the work ethic. I'll tell you a couple of stories that just resonate to this day with me. You remember in, in the summer of 93, we played in London against the Cowboys. I the do. American. I do. Yeah. It was a preseason game and it was actually, <laughs> our game was, the, was the last game played at the old, the last NFL game played at the old Wembley stadium. Yeah. And, and if the point is they were going to have Barry against Emmett and that was what they yeah. were promoting and neither of them right. played. <laughs> yeah. It was a, it was a different, you know, reality back then, but, uh, but there were 80,000 people in that stadium. It was sold out. So anyways, we were over there, our, our entire traveling party, um, as you recall, for almost the whole week. As we were preparing for the trip, you know, we wanted to have things for players, staff, family members, whoever, um, things for them to do. And back then, um, probably the most popular nightclub venue in the country, in the world, uh, was the, the London Hard Rock Cafe. I mean, that place was... If you had a chance to go there, you went there. It was at the top of the must-do, must-see list. Well, we stayed at the Intercontinental Hotel in London. And I'm not sure if you recall, but Hard Rock was just a couple blocks away. Oh, yeah, it was was walking distance. Walking distance. So what we did, again, uh, preparing for the trip, is we had essentially like a lapel pin made up for everybody in our party. And the, you know, the instructions were, look, wear this at all times, players, coaches, staff, you know, unless you're practicing or whatever, obviously, but this will identify you as part of the Lions party. So everybody got a pin, everybody was to wear the pin. And the other thing that the pin would do, um, while it identified you as a member of the official party, there were some benefits to it. And one of the benefits was we had made arrangements with the management at the Hard Rock that if anybody in our party wanted to go to the Hard Rock, they didn't have to wait in line, lines that were, you know, just a grant and a given, no matter what time of day you went to the, to the Hard Rock. Um, and the lines, you know, you'd probably be in line for well over an hour at a minimum just to get in. It was so popular. As I recall, it was a Friday night, and some of our beat writers um, from the newspapers that, that went over with us and they were part of our traveling party, so they had their pins on as well. They're going to go to the Hard Rock this Friday night. So they leave the hotel and turn the corner, and the line is forever. It's a Friday night. The line is forever. So they start walking. They got their pin on. They're going to get to go to the front of the line. They're going to, they're going to get welcomed right in, 
go halfway down the line. Oh, you got to be kidding who's, me. Who's standing there all by himself? Barry Sanders. And they stop, Barry, 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 hey! You know, and they have a nice little exchange. And not surprisingly, they immediately know it's Barry. You got your pin on. Like we had asked all the players to do when they were out in public. And I don't know which one. Barry, you got your pin on. Hey, you don't have to wait in line. We we can we can go to the front and get right in the front door. And Barry, you know, here's what he's being told. And he, typical Barry gives you one of those. Hmm, hmm, yeah. Um. Nah, that's okay. I'll just wait here with everybody else. That's that's Barry, <laughs> isn't it? Think about that. Holy mackerel! Uh, yeah. That speaks volumes about him as a human being. I I love Barry Sanders. Yeah, yeah. And 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 the other story I'll tell you that I know you'll you'll have a recollection to the game that is a part of the story. So it was the uh, it was the final weekend of the '96 season which ended up being Wayne Fonts' final year, too. So uh, we had high hopes going into that season. We actually started 4-2 and two in that season, and then the wheels came off. We only won one game the rest of the year, and that game was against Seattle at the Silverdome. And, and I can tell you a story about that game that I'll never forget as well. But again, yeah, regarding Barry. So it's the final week of the season. We're playing at San Francisco on Monday night of that of that year so friday is going to be our final regular day of practice you know we're leaving actually on saturday to go out to san francisco um so we're going to have a practice friday and then uh, a little walk through saturday before we go out to san francisco so i get a call uh mid-morning from dave goldberg who was the sports editor of associated press in new york and ap had just finalized their all-pro team for that season. Not surprisingly, Barry was the unanimous selection um, for the umpteenth straight time, right? So Dave tells me they're going to release the story. They're going to post the story later that that day, that that early evening, late afternoon. So he asked me if I could get a couple quotes from Barry for the story about being a unanimous choice again, blah, blah, blah. So I said, of course, yeah, I'll, I'll get them. You know, we're about to go out to practice. I'll see if I can get them now. If not, I'll get them after practice. Okay. So I got down the locker room, and um, and and it was it was real close to the start of practice. I'm able to grab Barry and tell him what's going on, and he tells me, okay, grab me after practice. You know, I'll give you what you need. Okay. So again, Brandy, this is last week of December. You know, cold gloomy dreary and you're not you know. and you're not going anywhere and it's uh it's tough it, it, it's tough in the nfl when you're not going anywhere you know the reality yep that, that i'm talking about so practice is over and i'm dealing with wayne and the media after practice and so by the time i get done with that and go in the locker room randy half the guys are gone already <laughs> oh They're sure gone. yeah they were done. They were looking to get out of there. I'm surprised there were still half of them there. <laughs> yeah. You know, three yeah. quarters of them probably were gone. Right. It may have been. So I go to Barry's locker. His clothes are still in there, but he's not there. So I'm thinking, okay, is he getting treatment? You know, what's going on? I go in the training room, no Barry. I'm thinking, he's not watching film. Is he? I go in the meeting room. He's, everybody's gone. 
So I'm like, oh, crap, he forgot. Barry could be absent-minded at times, I mean, truthfully. And then I think, maybe he's out on the field. Maybe he was doing an interview I wasn't aware of or whatever. I go back out on the field. It's empty. And now I'm like, okay, what in the world do I need to do? I'm not sure what caused me to do it, but I thought, you know what? I'm going to go check the weight room, which was just off of the tunnel with the Silver Dome. Yeah. Before you got onto the field. It was underneath the bleachers. Right. Um, and so I opened the door to the weight room, and immediately I hear the clanking of weights, the weight machines. I hear the noise. I turn the corner, and there's one player in there. One. Barry Sanders. <laughs> so I'm like, of course it's Barry Sanders. Of course it is. Of course it is. So Barry sees me. And he says, hey, just give me a half hour. I go, absolutely, whatever you need, Barry. <clears throat> so I go back up to my office, you know, probably 20, 25 minutes later, I head back down to the locker room. Well, now it is empty. It's dark. I mean, there's a few safety lights on, whatever, but there's nobody there. And I go and, and go to Barry's locker. His clothes are still in there, but he's nowhere to be found. So now I'm thinking, oh, man. You know, he's gone, but I'm, I'm like, I have to get this story, right? I have to, I have to get to him. So I go back to the, to the weight room and it's dark. Um, he's not in there. So I'm thinking maybe he ran home. He lived in Rochester Hills. You know, I'm going to have to go over to his house, blah, blah, blah. So I'm standing in the tunnel. Um, and again, if you can visualize this, it's, so like I said, last week of December, cold, dark, gloomy day. And again, sort of like earlier when I went into the weight room, I thought, I'm going to go back out onto the field. So I opened the door to go back out onto the field, come through the end zone. And by that time, the lights had been shut out in the, in the Silver Dome. We had practiced inside, and they turned the, the main lights out. There was like safety lights on that rimmed the middle of the stadium. I mean, if you squinted your eyes, it looked like a spaceship. Yeah. And again, with the translucent roof, it, it, there was no light getting in because it was cloudy. It was cold. It was dark. It was dreary. And I walk out, and halfway down the field, I see this image running Gathers, Barry Sanders. And, I mean, I get chills to this day just thinking of that. I'm like, oh, my gosh. It's Yeah, he had the greatest God-given ability. But, man, what he did to – make sure he got the most out of that. You know, what do they say? Character is what you do when no one's watching. Exactly. What you do when no one's watching. And in this case, there was one person watching and I thank God for it because I'll never forget this. So, you know, I let him finish his, his sprints and we get the story and, you know, I call Dave from Associated Press. So mission accomplished, but there's more to the story. So, Again, we have to go to San Francisco um, for the Monday night game. So going into that game, Barry was 160 yards behind Terrell Davis for the NFL rushing title, right? And the 49ers going into that game had the NFC's number one rushing defense, all right? <laughs> well, if, if, you can if you can imagine, which I know you can, so I'm watching this game with those images of Barry in the weight room, with those images of Barry running sprints just etched into my mind, you know, and I'm watching him 
and he rushes for 175 yards that night against the top defense. He had a run that you've seen a hundred times, a thousand times on highlights where he did a, a, a 180 spin around and went for a 57 yard touchdown. I think it was. So when I think about that game and that performance and what he was doing on Friday, when everybody else was gone, everybody, but Barry, those are the memories I carry with me about that guy. That's great, great stuff. And uh, that was Barry, and, and it gives you a little insight into the, yeah. the young man and the player and the dedication he had. The The other thing I want to get to, too, Bill, is those are great moments that, you know, like you said, yeah. give you goosebumps. But you also had to deal with some some tragic kind of moments. A Mike yeah. Utley situation, that's one of yeah. those things, the thumbs up. It, it became kind of a cause. It but did. at the time, you, as a public relations, media relations guy, have to deal with – a real serious issue uh, yeah, with it, the Mike Utley deal. How, how do you, yeah. you know, handle that? I mean, that, that had to be like new territory for you. It was, you don't, you don't prepare for that. There's no, not really a blueprint for going through something like that. And uh, I mean, the only other, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Brandy, but the only other example of anything remotely close to that was Daryl Stingley back in the seventies. I think it was right you know, with new England. And, and uh, so um, well, I, in my years of the Lions, and it was your years too, but the Mike yeah. Utley thing and, and then the Reggie Brown thing where Kent fall basically saved a life. You're yeah, a no, certified athletic trainer. Yeah. Uh, but Quite those sure. are issues that are totally away from what you normally do in football. You're talking about medical exactly. issues and, and, yeah. and life threatening yeah. issues in many instances. Yeah. And the, 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 the Mike Utley um, injury, occurred in a game against the Rams. It was on a touchdown pass. Eric Kramer threw to uh, Mike Farr, I believe it was. And it wasn't, it was just, it didn't look like a, you know, anything unique about the play. But Mike was engaged with, with their lineman and went down and hit his head on the turf at the Silverdome. And it was, it was serious. And I think that the way we handled that, you know, what information we could share, we did. I mean, obviously, it was more than a football story. Um, our doctors were great uh, when it came to, uh, you know, talking to the media when appropriate. Um, the most concerned, the most important thing was our concern for Mike and, and literally his life. And so the, uh, but, but just the impact it had on the team, it was unprecedented. It was unchartered. It was all those things. How do you deal with this? And, and Mike's gesture, his thumbs up to, raising his hand as he exited the field on that stretcher going through the tunnel. Um, maybe one of the greatest moments um, because of what it represented, the human spirit, really not about football, about life, what it gave to anyone going through a trial of tribulation back then. And even to this day um, has to be uh, considered, like I said, just for him to have the awareness of that moment. I mean, imagine you, you played it, at the highest level, Brandy. I mean, imagine them willing you off, you know, the turf at U of M. No, I we have that <laughs> have that thought to do that. Yeah, I know it's it's uh, it's incredible, and I've, I've known yeah. Mike and spoken to him after the event, yeah. and it, it just shows. I think the character of, of, a, of yeah. a man that knows that. Hey, it, again, it goes to team. You know, yeah. I know I maybe got a problem here, but I want everybody out there and the rest of the guys to know. Go ahead continue on win this game despite yeah. my problem and i just think it was such a great gesture on yeah. his part 
And I would have bet if you asked Mike today, and I, I probably know the answer, that he was, ah, it wasn't such a big deal. Yeah, he, he was always downplaying the impact he has had right. on air that, that, that he's touched since then. So, you know, we have that we have that horrific day. It was November 17th, 1991. And then the following week, and we're still dealing with everything about Mike, and it's new, and it's too early, and I mean, just the emotion, the uncertainty, the anxiety, just running rampant. But, you know, not unlike the Sunday night game this season between Seattle and Pittsburgh when the Seahawks had a player that got carted off right on a backboard. The teams had to come back and play, and they did. And, you know, that game went into overtime. So, you know, we had to come back and practice, and we had to come back and play. So we went to Minnesota. Um, the following week, and that is there's two games uh, that I'll I mean there's many, but there's two that may stand above when it comes to Barry, um, and what he did that that day, that Sunday in Minnesota, he had four touchdowns over 200 yards rushing. Um, I just think he carried the team that day in so many ways. He put Mike on his back, and literally and figuratively, and he was unstoppable. So we beat the Vikings and the thumbs up reality had, had become, you know, sort of omnipresent with everything about us by that time. And it was a national deal. So we get on the plane to fly back from uh, Minneapolis. We're playing the Bears on Thanksgiving and um, they've got a a one game lead on us. And, you know, we're in the playoff hunt and it's going to be one of the biggest games we've ever played certainly in my time there and, and maybe in Silverdome history, truthfully, up to that point. And so we're riding back and, and I'm thinking I'm already getting ready for uh, Madden and Summer all John and Pat to come in to do the game because it's a short week. You know, we got the CBS crew coming in literally the next day and starting to think of things. And then and then maybe it was divine inspiration. I don't know. But I thought I just, just started thinking, I said, wouldn't it be awesome? if we could have a message to Mike before kickoff. So I start writing some thoughts down on a piece of paper and then I go to Lomas and I go, Hey Lomas, he was the only one for me that could do this. And I go, I got an idea. You know, Michael will obviously be listening if not watching the game in this, in this hospital. Um, what if I can get approval, if you will, to have you read this little message to Mike right before kickoff. And of course, Lomas was all about that. Sure. So, the other part of it was I knew that CBS would love it because it's national TV. It's, it's a, it's an issue that transcends football. It's about life, you know, uh, obviously. And uh, I'm not sure that I, I, I didn't have to ask the bears for permission. I'm sure they would have gone along with it, but truthfully <laughs> I, I knew, or I believed that it would just light a fire under the crowd as well and give them a chance to participate in a, in a really in a real way and just express their love and concern for Mike as well by their reaction to the message. So, uh, so we got that all in place and, um, and Lomas read the message, you know, Hey Mike, we know you're listening. I want you to know you're as big a part of this team today as you've ever been. And you will always be a part of this team. You know, thanks for your strength, your inspiration. We love you, Mike. We love you. Thumbs up, Mike, thumbs up. And Brandy, I get goosebumps right now. Yeah. <laughs> think I do every time I think about that and the crowd went nuts yes they did 
And we got the opening kickoff. Mel Gray returned it about 50 yards. Um, and then we went on to beat the Bears. And, and uh, that was know, then, an electric day, as yeah. I can remember in the Silverdome. That, and I think when Barry went for uh, his 2,000 yards against the Jets. Yeah, well, remember the connection between, you know, Mike Utley and that Jets game. Yes. Reggie Brown in that game. Reggie Brown, that was when, like I said, Kent Fogg, you know, came out. I remember vividly yeah. Johnny Morton sprinting oh. down to the end zone to call for the yeah. ambulance to come out onto the field at the yep. open end of the Silverdome. That, they, they could do a 30 for 30 on that game that day. They could. What, what also happened that day that very few people were aware of or even know about, that there was a, a fan, I believe a season ticket holder, that had a heart attack in the, sta- in the stands about 20, 30 rows behind our bench. Uh, early in the game, it may have been during a break in the action. I'm not sure, but they had to transport him because uh, he was the, the quickest way to get into an ambulance was to have him taken down onto the field and transported him to the uh, to the same tunnel where Reggie Brown was, you know, a few quarters later, and uh, they had to take the gentleman to the hospital. That game was essentially a playoff game against the Jets. Whoever wins is going to the playoffs. Whoever doesn't is going home. Barry had the 2,000-yard, you know, conquest that he hoped to achieve. Um, and then, of course, what happened to Reggie Brown? I mean, there were so many sidebars to that game. And that was the game, as you'll well remember, that um, the Silverdome may have never been louder. I agree. Old, the quarterback for the Jets had to – Back then, if you couldn't hear, you could step away from center as a quarterback, and he stepped away three or four times. And players, you know, Robert Forche in particular, I recall him saying that they could literally feel the turf shake when the, the fans were at their crescendo. And, um, you know, what a day. What a just a roller coaster of emotion well, of events. unbelievable that day. I remember – Usually when you wear headsets, which I was wearing to broadcast the game, but when you wear headsets, you get a sense of the noise, but you don't, it doesn't play because you're muffled. I remember right. that, that day, yeah. Yeah. Uh, take, taking my headsets off to say, wait a minute, am I getting too much feedback? And it right. wasn't feedback. It, it was the crowd. Yeah. Isn't that something? Yeah. It, yeah. Was, it was amazing. Uh, those are, yeah. those are great stories and I, and I wanted to go to those, but now I want to go to a little more. The business has changed. Sports has changed. Yeah. Everything that you have done, and now you're not out of it, but you were there when all of this stuff happened. I'm going to ask you about the change that, that your job took as social yeah. media started to take over and yeah. sports talk radio started to take over. Yeah. It expanded your job because you've got to tell your players, be careful about this social media, Twitter, Facebook stuff, and yeah. what that can lead to. And yeah. What you say, you've got to be guarded because sports talk radio will take a sentence and get 24 to 48 hours on it nonstop. Yeah. And you've got to be careful. That changed how you had to do business, didn't it? Yeah, no question. I mean, if you go back to the early days of, of my profession, sports PR, it was publicity. You wanted to publicize your players, your team, your coaches, your organization. And that's still true to an extent. But as the evolution of our side of the business occurred, and certainly with the advent of social media, 
you know, the way we came to realize things, it was, it was almost less publicity and more protection of our players, our coaches, because, you know, in the past, when, when Sports Illustrated, for instance, was the gold standard, um, which it was, you know, generations ago, as we recall, when we were growing up, Brandy, um, you get a request from Sports Illustrated and it's, you don't even, you don't even listen to the request. Absolutely. What do you need? You know, we'll do it. Years later, it was okay. Let us think about this. (laughs) Think think about that statement though, Billy, for a minute. We used to publicize. Now it was more protection. Yeah. Think about that for a minute. Isn't that kind of sad that, yeah. But but that's I'm not saying that that's untrue. I'm saying that's absolutely true. But it's sad that it it went yeah. that direction, isn't it? Yeah, and and I think part and parcel to that reality is when you look at social media, the internet, everything, the the uh, the way that that part of the industry succeeds is the way it monetizes. And I, I don't use that word, but that's the buzzword. How do you monetize things? the way that part of our industry succeeds is by clicks. Okay. I mean, it's that simple. How many people went on the story? How many people clicked on this headline? How many people clicked on that? Blah, 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 blah. So the, the strategy thus is to get people to click, (laughs) right? Yep. And where they go to what they see or read is less important than the actual click. And I, I'll tell you one one example with that. We got a request a few years back from ESPN, uh, the Mike and Mike show, to have Matthew on. And you know they had Matthew on before. He had a good relationship with him, so sure we'll do we'll do it. And and, and again, though it wasn't without some you know evaluation on our part. Okay, what are the issues? What could come up? Blah blah blah. Everything seemed to be in in a in a good spot. So Matthew does the story and or does the interview and it's, it's on ESPN and they show it a couple of times and it goes really well. Well, toward the end of the interview and, and gosh, I forget the, the name of the game, but there was this social media, this internet phone app game that was taking the country by storm. And, and what it involved was something on your phone and you know, you're, it's almost like a scavenger hunt. Maybe I, I forget, but, during that that time frame when this thing was was at its height of popularity you could go anywhere public and you'd see people with their faces buried in the phone just looking for their next direction their next hint their next clue whatever it was and it became a phenomenon i mean it was a national reality matthew is doing this interview with mike and mike and one of them says to matthew hey have you uh have you played that new game yet? And, and Matt, you know, Matthew goes, no, I haven't. I, I, uh, gosh, I, he sort of said, I don't get it. You know, people are, you know, spending more time on their phone than they are talking to their friends or family. And then he, he, he shared a story. He says, in fact, Kelly and I, Matthew and his wife, we were in Ann Arbor at a, at a, a diner, a restaurant, uh, earlier in the week and they were sitting outside and he said, yeah, we're sitting out there having dinner and, and I see all these people, you know, walking up and down the street and none of them are talking. None of them are looking at anything but their phone. And then uh, one of the hosts asked Matthew, he says, well, what about the young guys in your locker room? And uh, he goes, yeah, it's the same thing. I just don't get it. I mean, <clears throat> how can you spend that much time looking at a phone? It's a generational thing or whatever. So, uh, okay. You know, he had a, 
an answer that you or I would have had for the for the question. I I <laughs> I, 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 I agree with them. <laughs> yeah. So uh, so again, like I said, you you evaluate media requests like you didn't before. Um, Matthew does the the interview, and by all counts, it went well. And also knowing that you know this is a reality of any any type of national interview story, whatever the local media is going to pick it up. So we're waiting for those stories to run. And MLive runs a story with the headline, Stafford, uh, and I, I won't remember the exact headline, Brandy, but it was essentially Stafford disappointed in, in younger teammates or, <laughs> you know. It, no, it, it, I, it, I, I, can, I can see it, Bill. Yeah. The headline suggested that he was angry at his teammates that played this game. And I'm like, what in the world are we doing here? But again, think about it. You see that headline, you're clicking on that story, right? Sure. In a heartbeat. If you're a Lions fan, if you're a football fan, you're clicking on the story. They got their click. And I, I called, you know, the sports department and I expressed, you know, significant displeasure with it. And I said, you could say bemused. And I think that's what they changed the headline to. But I'm like, it's it's all about clicks and crawls, and and uh, that's how things are monetized. Well, and people, and, and then the other thing, Billy, is people should understand now why athletes like a Matthew Stafford doesn't necessarily want to do interviews anymore. Because oh, yeah, when they say something yeah. that's totally innocuous, they try right. to be real about their right. own personality, and then all yeah. of a sudden it turns into this giant controversy. I didn't athletes, sign yeah. up for that. No, no, and it's. It's sadly, it's prevalent in, in all areas of society and media and journalism. And, you know, I remember hearing a few years ago that true journalism ended when CNN started. And this isn't a knock against CNN. It's just when cable news started and they had to fill 24 hours of programming. And all you have to do is look at how CNN covers the political race compared to Fox. I mean, it's the same issue, but the approaches and the views can be diametrically different. And it all speaks to, we need viewers, we need clicks. And that's the way our industry has become too, the sports industry. Yep. Unbelievable. You're right about that though. You know, it's a, it's a microscope into the the societal changes that we've all been through. And social media doesn't just have an impact on sports. Yeah. But it has yeah. an impact on everything, politics, uh, I, how, how how newspapers work, and how no, how okay. information is disseminated to the public. Yeah, and I I think this, and this is really a sad commentary, that the one thing I believe has happened, maybe over the last five, ten, fifteen years, is there's been more on the national level, if not exclusively on the national level, there have been stories written that I just don't believe are true that I think there's more anonymous sources, team sources, you know, player sources. You, you never used to see that, you know, 20, 30 years ago. You didn't, you didn't use a quote unless you could attribute it to the individual that stated it. Or you had but three what, or four sources to guarantee yeah, right, right. and confirm that that story yeah. was true. Nowadays, it doesn't matter. Somebody that can matters. say anything they darn well please out yeah. there, and somebody yeah. will report it as fact. Exactly. Yeah, there was a 
and, and I've seen a number of national stories regarding the NFL like that. And I, I look at the headline and I look at who wrote it and I look at the content and I'm like, none of that, none of that actually happened. But I'll give you one example. Back after Bob Quinn was hired, there was a story, a national writer tweeted something about uh, who we were hiring as our salary cap person. And, um, and it was a national story and it was at like six thirty in the morning. This thing gets posted on social media, on Twitter. I start getting calls. The long and short of it is it was categorically untrue. Okay. Didn't happen. Not even remotely possible that it could have happened. So years ago, if that had occurred in a newspaper article or something, you know, if you reported that on channel seven or, you know, wherever there would have been repercussions for the reporter. Right. But absolutely. They would have been called on the carpet. Yeah. But here's what I believe happens today. So it's, and and then the, the, what, what happened literally in that case was about two or three hours after the original post, the, uh, the individual that reported it first came back and said, sorry, but my, my sources were wrong. This is not happening. Blah. Okay. So you can picture this. The, the editor calls that reporter in um, and says, you know, what in the world happened here? You were wrong. He goes, well, boss, here's the deal. Yeah, I was. But do you realize how many hits we got on that story? We got a million hits. And guess what? That translates in, into, into X amount of dollars from our advertisers. Is that sad? Yeah, it is. Because it, it's, it's not journalism as we knew it. No. It's, oh, but that's the business as we're now in. I couldn't agree more. I, I see it happen every day. I don't want to yeah. sound like I'm cynical, but I'm very much like yeah. you. Whenever yeah. I see something or even read any, I don't even read much in the newspapers anymore because yeah. I yeah. truly have, have an issue with some of the things they say. For instance, I'll give yeah. you an example of mine. We're in Florida. And the headline above the fold in a Daytona Beach newspaper said, job growth down as pandemic hits mid-central Florida. Okay, that's the headline, right? So down in the bottom below the fold in the lower corner, there's another smaller article that says 325 new workers being hired at at a boat builder in uh, in Edgewater. And I'm thinking... How can you have yeah. one headline say that and then another one you're you're hiring three hundred twenty five more guys? Right. Yeah. It's like yeah. it's like somebody in the newspaper got it wrong, didn't figure this out. Right. No, uh, that's a great But that, yeah. that's kind of what you got going. Okay. Yeah. We've gone on forever here, but but you're working now no longer for the Lions, but you're working for the National Football League. Tell yeah. us what you're doing for the National Football League. Yeah, it's been wonderful. I'm a uh, a national game rep working for the NFL's broadcasting department, and um, basically the the league assigns an individual to every game to work with uh, the broadcasting crew from that game, uh, primarily the uh, AD, the associate director, um, with the green hat and orange sleeve on the field. We have meetings with the head official, head referee before every game, and just really to make sure the game flow is correct and all the commercial breaks get get in because that's what pays all of our bills. Right? Yeah, all yeah. And their structure and protocols for all that. When you go to a break, when you don't, how many breaks a quarter, you know, some games 
really flow, you know, easily. I had a game uh, two weeks ago where uh, the opening drive of the game was 18 plays and 10 minutes, <laughs> which which meant, you know, the four breaks we were supposed to get in in the first quarter didn't happen. So then you have to get strategic and creative about making up the breaks. Um, but it's wonderful because, you know, you're part of the game. Um, you're part of a game and, and the game of football, uh, renewing acquaintances with colleagues and friends with the teams in the league. And, uh, and, and it's, it's great. And, it, you, it's and, and Billy, you've got your own radio show, don't you? You're, you're, <laughs> you're joining, you're joining us now. Yeah. What a, what a, yeah. What a sit down. Uh, you're sitting, sitting down Archer moment there. Yeah. That, that's been a, a blast. Just, uh, Sean Belisian and I just talk football every Sunday night on WJR. Um, and it's, it's celebrating the game, which we love to do. Which you and I have had discussions about forever, you and, know, because and, there's no game. Exactly, and football. and and that leads me to my last question. I mean, not to not to short shrift your no. your trip into the media and your trip at WJR on a Sunday night, but yeah. the last question I was going to ask you in this interview, and I got it right here on my paper. You are one of the guys you and I would sit quietly alone yeah. uh, over a cup of coffee or an adult yeah. beverage and talk about football and philosophically yeah. talk about its importance. And you had yeah. two sons yeah. who followed football, who got involved in it. And I'm getting goosebumps right now. to just think yeah. the lessons learned that you and I talked about how important this game is yeah. to one, yeah. your development as a human being and what it teaches. And I want yeah. you to go through some of that because you and I have a very similar yeah. attitude about this game and how it can yeah. benefit you as a human being as you move forward in your life. Well, I, I, I believe, especially at the high school level, that the football field is the greatest classroom any of these young men will ever be in because the life lessons are forever. I mean, they literally are life lessons. And no sport mirrors life like football does. Teamwork. You know, getting knocked down, getting back up. I mean, there's nothing like the game of football at every level, at every level. And, you know, I, I'm partial to high school football um, as well as the NFL and college football. Both my sons played high school and small college. My oldest son, Billy, is the head coach at Troy Athens. I remember a few years ago when he actually uh, was coaching college football for one season at his um, alma mater at Adrian College, and they won the – the MIA championship that year. I mean, they had a great season. He was a quarterback's coach. And we met after the season. In fact, Brandy, we met the week after our playoff loss at Dallas. Yeah, boy, do we remember that. Well, the Brandon um, Pettigrew interference, exactly. no interference call. Exactly. So Billy still was committed to Adrian College um, through that, that school year. And uh, we were going to meet to talk about his future because I thought, you know, he had the year in college and, um, you know, we were talking about some GAs at, at Division One programs and had, had talked to some people at, at that level at that point in time. And, uh, and he told me that coaching that year at college was the greatest decision he made because he had been coaching high school and teaching high school. And uh, I said, great. And I'm, I'm ready for him to tell me he wants to go on and up to the highest level. And, and I go, and I go, okay, well, why do you say that? He says, because I know now what I am. It's, you know, everybody's different. He goes, 
well, what are you? He says, dad, I'm a high school coach. He says, I want to have the biggest impact on the youngest kids I can. And you hear that as a father and you get chills and tears and think, wow, that's, that's awesome. That gives me and, goosebumps, Bill. And he, even at that, um, we had, we had Larry foot on our radio show last night. Larry's a close friend, you know, a great U of M player legend, yep. um, a Detroit native. Yeah, that's right. Pershing high school, uh, the Doughboys, and, uh, you know, from Pershing to U of M to the Steelers, where he went to Super Bowls the year with us. Now he's a coach with the Buccaneers. But we were talking about this type of thing, and, and Larry knows he can still have an impact on the on the pros. So you, the game of football gives you an opportunity to impact lives at every level, every single level, because of the uniqueness of the game, because of what it represents. Um, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. And you know, in other sports, I mean, we love baseball. I love baseball. I played baseball the longest of any sport. But there, there are games where you know a right fielder would never touch a ball, <laughs> or a center fielder, or a shortstop, and never get a hit, and their team wins or loses without that reality. In football, it's every player on the field must do their job. Um, in fact, one one prime example of that is we just talked about the uh, 96 season, the story about Barry, right? Yeah. And I, I often will share this question and story with high school teams or college teams that I've spoken to. If if you were told that you would have the, the league's leading rusher and the league's leading receiver, how well do you think your team would have done that year? The majority – We'll answer, oh, we'll, we'll win the division. We'll win the conference. We'll blah, blah, blah. And I go, yeah, that makes sense. But you know what? We're talking about football. Okay. It's not just about the parts. It's about the sum of the whole, not the sum of the parts. And in 1996, as we talked about a little while ago, Barry Sanders was the NFL's leading rusher. Herman Moore finished two catches behind Jerry Wright as the NFL's leading receiver. The Detroit Lions finished last in our division that year. And that is the beauty of football, is it takes everybody. It's not just one or two. It's everybody. And I think that's why we love the game. I think you see that with U of M this year, with Michigan State this year. Um, that's why we love the game, and that's why there's nothing like it. And, and when people rail against football, when people – talk about the uh, danger of football, um, which I don't agree with because to me, life is a contact sport, literally and figuratively in so many different ways. And what football prepares you for is uh, undeniable, undeniable. The lessons learned are things you take with you for your life until you Go to your grave, and, and yeah, I contend right. that. You and I both believe that. I, I enjoyed you enjoying your sons and their journeys through high school and into college and how much yeah. you enjoyed that journey. Oh, yeah. And I have enjoyed this journey a lot, Bill. Um, we yeah. we have done close to two hours, and I want to tell you what. Exactly. It went fast, baby. Yeah, well, it, it, it went fast because it was so good, buddy. Well, I appreciate you. and uh, Yeah. You're always welcome back on Conversations With. Thanks so much, Bill. Thank you, Brandy. Love you, buddy.
Can't thank Billy enough for his time and his candor in this conversation. While he still works with the NFL, his time with the Lions was momentous considering the events he witnessed and experienced. He's a football lifer and dedicated to his job. He makes the game better, and he's a valuable asset that the Lions were very lucky to have through the great many years he was there. Stay with us for more conversations with on The Brandy Show. Check out past episodes and keep watching my Facebook page and Twitter for the next episode.